Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. We are getting less snowpack, and we're getting less spotting areas, and we're getting less fish habitat. And so, you know, entire areas of, of fisheries are being wiped out. Climate change. Those two words are becoming more present every day even to those of us who prefer the peace and quiet of a morning on the water or the excitement of a bugle-piercing crisp fall air. But we've begun to notice that things are a bit off. When wildfires still rage during rifle season, or western rivers have permanent afternoon fishing closures every summer, or when more frequent and more powerful hurricanes continue to ravage the duck factories of the southeast, something just ain't right, and we know it. Our sporting traditions are threatened. Threatened in a way we can't ignore. Threatened in a way that could severely alter our way of life. So, shall we sit and watch our hunts slide away? Our family fishing trips deteriorate into a lesser version of the glory days? And our cherished Octobers and Novembers drift into something we can only reminisce about? That's really not an option. Our option is to get active use our knowledge, and tell our stories. Tell the world that our sporting lives are worth saving and that there's plenty left worth fighting for. We start now. We start by telling our stories. This is Vanishing Seasons, Climate Chronicles from the Field. Welcome to Vanishing Seasons. This is Aaron Kindle. Today we're talking about the southwestern United States. The Southwest is an expansive, undeniably beautiful, but also austere region full of hard scrabble mountains, deserts, and arroyos. It is already the hottest and driest part of the United States, but has also experienced a greater rise in temperature over the last 40 years than almost any other part of the country. Recent scientific studies have used tree ring data to examine the region's climate over the past 1,000 years. The current warming trend is outside the variation of this entire time period, and drought has abnormally rained over the region since the late 1990s, 
showing no signs of letting up. To understand the realities of a changing climate in the Southwest, we caught up with Gabe Vasquez, a lifelong hunter and angler from the heart of the Chihuahuan Desert on the border of New Mexico and Mexico. Gabe spoke of his deep family ties to the area and to the fish and wildlife that call the region home. Uh, how long have you lived there? So your whole life, you grew up in Las Cruces? So my name is Gabe Vasquez, and I've been a long-life resident of the U.S.-Mexico border here in southern New Mexico, El Paso, Texas, and Ciudad Juarez. It's what we call the frontera. My family was originally from a little ranch in a state called Zacatecas in central Mexico. And my grandfather moved at that time about four or five kids out to the border for the promise of a better life and subsequently ended up having 12 kids. And we grew up in a very industrialized part of this region. Uh, in the 1960s, the U.S., you know, they, they put forth this national border industrialization program, which was really a way to bring American manufacturing to small Mexican border towns that eventually ended up booming because they wanted the cheap labor and the honestly exploitation of labor. And my grandpa brought us here because there were jobs here. And so this is this is the heart of the Chihuahuan Desert, this entire borderland area from the Sierra de Juarez to the Franklin Mountains to the Oregon Mountains where I live today. And subsequently, when I grew up in this, uh, right next to the railroad tracks in a neighborhood called La Chavena, I always saw my grandfather cleaning animals uh, in our, you know, 10 foot by 10 foot patio at my grandma's house and was fascinated by it. And so I'd hang around my grandpa, Javier Bañuelos, as much as I could. They called him El Oso because he was probably one of the biggest Mexicans you ever saw. Uh, he was about 6'4". I think he wore a size 16 shoe. And and so he was a formidable uh, outdoorsman. Um, but he'd hunt everything from from bear to puma uh, to antelope to deer, uh, everything that he could find to harvest, he would bring home to his family, to his 10 kids. Uh, two of our, two of my aunt and uncles ended up not making it past uh, childhood, but he had a big family to feed. Gabe hunts everything from mule deer and javelina to ducks and grouse and fishes for trout, bass, and catfish. He recently set out on a desert mule deer hunt in the Oregon mountains hoping to bring home venison for the dinner table. You recently went on a mule deer hunt. <laughs> sure. Um, so I was lucky to score a, a mule deer hunt um, in Unit 21, which is, uh, it's a pretty diverse unit. It really, it touches right up to the base of the Gila National Forest. Uh, it extends all the way south to the uh, U.S.-Mexico border. And it borders Unit 19, which is just outside of the Oregon Mountains here in Las Cruces, and goes all the way up to Caballo Lake uh, here in southern New Mexico. So you get to hunt pretty a pretty wide range of, of terrain, um, from, from low desert to high desert to uh, alpine forests, where I was hunting up in the Lake Valley area, uh, which is just south of the Black Range in the Gila National Forest. Just tell me a little bit, bring us to your hunt a little bit. We've had very little water this year, and my initial thought was that I would look for 
really anywhere where there's water. I thought that's where I would find um, the bucks. That's where I would find deer. And I scouted a little bit, not as much as I'd like to early on, but but knew that I could go to a place where I have seen deer for the last, I don't know, five or six years, especially because it's a place I go quail hunting. And the Lake Valley area um, south of the uh, southwest of the Gila National Forest is an interesting mix of, of, of juniper, um, high alpine, uh, as higher that higher that you get. And in the flats, you know, you get your typical Chihuahuan desert with yucca and cactus and mesquite and creosote, uh, pretty rugged terrain. But I've seen big bucks jump out of the arroyos in some of the most unforgiving, unformidable terrain you could really uh, imagine here in the hot desert. And that's where I plan to hunt because you could really get into these three different areas. It's kind of a transition area for us. And and it's a place, like I said, I've seen countless amount of, of deer. And uh, during my hunt in in September, uh, I knew that the bucks would be running together. And so I wasn't looking for does so much. Unfortunately, that's all I found. Um, but it's a lot of hiking. You know, it's a lot of uh, backcountry, um, you know, rugged uh you know, sidestepping mountains just to get to, you know, the nearest water hole uh, for miles on end and a lot of glassing, as you can imagine, lots of good points to do that. Uh, but it was ungodly hot this year uh, to the point where around 1 p.m. or so for the few days that I got the opportunity to get out there and hunt, um, I had to I had to either, you know, sit and rest for a couple of hours or decide to go back home and try again the next day. And, and that's usually, you know, that's, that's what I ended up doing for three days. <laughs> I had to right around 1 PM when it hit that hundred degree mark, um, which it's never been that hot here. You know, I had to, I had to call it quits and, and count my, count my blessings. And, you know, before I got too dehydrated or suffered heat stroke, go back home and, and come back and try again the next day. And so, it's it, it was a bow hunt um, as well, which is always a little bit more challenging uh, on the approach and on the stock. But you know, I didn't see I didn't see the deer that I usually see uh, this time uh, at that particular point of the year. And I'm not sure if it was the heat. I'm not sure if it was something else. But um, I, I just didn't see the numbers of deer that I usually see in this area of Lake Valley, New Mexico. So. Talk a little bit about what hunting means to you and why you hunt. Yeah, that's a big question, Aaron. As you know, that uh, hunting is is a personal thing for many people. That uh, you know, a lot of it, I think, is about tradition. It is about culture. It's about the way you're brought up. And for me, I think it's a mix of a couple of different things. One is I feel that I am honoring my grandfather's way of life when I hunt. I feel that I am holding on to dying tradition as a Mexican person, as a mestizo, uh, when I do engage in hunting. Um, taking an animal is not an easy thing to do for, for any human, but I feel that it brings me a little bit closer to my ancestry and it brings me a little bit closer, honestly, to my own, um, my own personal healing. And, you know, it's a very spiritual thing for me to be able to take an animal and it's an act really of, of joy when I get to bring meat home to my friends and to my family that I don't get that I don't get that type of reward from a whole lot of other activities. And so I don't hunt for myself. I feel like I'm hunting for my family. I'm hunting for my friends. I'm hunting really to honor a way of life that was taught to me that I feel like 
is is dwindling. It's 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 slowly dying up, and so it's important to me to hold on to that tradition. I love it. So, what's your favorite species to hunt? What do you like to hunt most? Uh, javelina. I think javelina is my favorite. A um, couple different reasons. One is uh, there's over the counter javelina tags in New Mexico that you can get fairly easily, and um, where I live in Unit 21, it's an over-the-counter area. Uh, I often see javelina throughout the year, whether I'm hiking, I'm on a road bike or a mountain bike, or I'm just walking and running my dog. And so I look for javelina year-round because I have that opportunity when I can harvest one to go back to those same spots and look for those little guys. Um, you know, they're almost blind and they are they can be pretty vicious. Uh, but if you get upwind of a javelina, you can actually get pretty dang close to them without them even knowing that you're there. And so I get a kick out of that. I get a kick out of getting, you know, 20, 30 yards from a javelina and he doesn't have a clue that you're there. And so uh, it, and, and it's good eating as well. It's good eating. Um, and not a lot of people uh, hunt javelina for whatever reason. I think there's a misconception that that they don't taste very good. Um, I think it's just, you got to learn how to prepare them. But I, I would say javelina is my favorite species. It's also an iconic species here in the Chihuahuan desert. And so that's another reason I'm, I, I think I'm closely connected to that species. The Southwest has four true deserts, averaging less than 10 inches of annual precipitation. The region is also highly reliant on annual monsoon rains in mid to late summer which can comprise up to 50% of its annual rainfall. Sometimes, those rains don't come. Those occurrences are more frequent as of late. 2019 was the ninth driest and third hottest year on record since 1895. Phoenix, Arizona broke the record for days exceeding 110 degrees at 34 days this past summer and recorded its hottest month on record in June. The Southwest is undoubtedly heating up fast. Will the fish and wildlife we depend on to fuel our sporting pursuits survive the new realities? Let's talk about climate change and what it means to hunting. You know, you, you know, I know you and I have talked a little bit before about some of the things your your hunt this year with the excruciating heat. You know, what have you noticed regarding climate changes related to the animals that you hunt and the habitat you're in and, and, and that general story? Water is really the most important and the, the key to survival in the Chihuahuan Desert. And so the increase in heat, the increase in water evaporation and less in vegetation or less diverse vegetation because of the lack of moisture uh, has really led, I think, to the decline in species, in particular mule deer. Um, that used to be plentiful in places like the Potrillo Mountains are no longer uh, as plentiful as they used to be. And when you have creosote and you have mesquite dominate an entire landscape because of overgrazing, because um, local ranchers can't produce enough water, they are completely decimating entire areas of vegetation that would once provide habitat for pronghorn and for mule deer that is no longer there. And so what I'm starting to see is just a lessened availability of adequate habitat for these animals. And so you're pushing them up north, you're pushing them into colder areas, 
and you're seeing their numbers decline. And you're just creating these kind of massive wastelands of very uniform vegetation with just a few species and the corridors that, you know, for migration or mating for these big game species are disappearing. The average temperature in the Southwest has increased nearly two degrees Fahrenheit since 1901, which has reduced snowpack and dried the already dry region at an ever faster rate. Seven states that rely on the dwindling Colorado River have now drafted drought contingency plans due to the prolonged dry conditions, wondering just how in the world they'll fill the region's needs. Even with these plans in place, water shortages are on the rise, and New Mexico already has the lowest water-to-land ratio in the United States, while fish and wildlife disproportionately rely on wetted and riparian areas in the southwest. Estimates say that despite covering less than 2% of the landscape, Wetted areas are relied on by more than 80% of wildlife species. This means that everything from fish to birds to ungulates must use these areas as they dwindle. While the critters that live in the southwest are certainly adapted to hot and dry conditions, sometime soon they'll hit a breaking point. With ever hotter and drier conditions spreading across the southwest and water becoming more and more scarce, how much will fish and wildlife be able to take? And will our sporting tradition survive? What about fishing? How these water shortages you're talking about have changed your outlook or your opportunities for fishing? Do you remember a time in your lifetime when fishing was a lot better? I mean, have you seen it change? You know, you're a fairly young guy, but, you know, when you were a kid, do you remember fishing being twice as good? Yeah, I mean, when I grew up fishing Caballo Lake, uh, I remember catching our limit in less than 30 minutes of white bass in some of these coves where the white bass were spawning. You could throw just about anything at them and they would bite and we'd pull 30 to 40 white bass in in less than 30 minutes. Um, it was an incredible experience to have with your family. Uh, I go back to that same cove today and it doesn't have water, hasn't had water for years. Um, and so I'm not sure where those white bass have gone, but they're certainly not there. You know, the same with the stream flows in the Gila River. Um, you could really fish different parts of the Gila year round um, for a variety of different species that uh, was really enjoyable. And you go you go up today and you have to look at the stream gauges. That's the way I fish the Gila today is I look at I look at the stream gauge and look at the CFS over the last week. And that's where I choose to fish, which is pretty sad. Um, because I know that there's, you know, riparian areas that are just being decimated. Um, you know, we are getting less snowpack and we're getting less spotting areas and we're getting less fish habitat. And so, you know, entire areas of, of fisheries are being wiped out. The Southwest is also home to nearly 200 recognized tribal nations, including the Apache, Navajo and Utes, with history dating back more than 20,000 years. With their deep ties and knowledge of the land, southwestern tribal nations have been adopting climate action plans to protect their way of life. Their reliance on hunting, fishing, and gathering has also provided a front row seat to our changing climate and what it means for their communities. These deep cultural ties to the land also mean that tribal members and their traditions will be heavily affected 
due to losses of traditional foods such as the pinon nut. The pinon pine is New Mexico's state tree and is critically important for wildlife habitat and for its ability to survive drought. Southwestern tribes have been gathering the protein-rich pinon nuts for thousands of years, and numerous wildlife species rely on the nuts as a food source. The trees themselves provide habitat for many species hunters pursue. Pinon trees are particularly suited to the hot and dry conditions of the southwest, but as of late, even this resilient species is struggling. Since the early 2000s, drought and heat has caused massive pinon tree die-off, with some areas seeing more than 90% of trees die. Reports suggest as many as 350 million pinon trees have died across the West in this time period, and science predict that pinons could completely disappear from much of their range by 2030. Will the animals we rely on as hunters adapt to such a massive loss? So do you have any personal anecdotes that kind of sum it up, you know, or what you've seen in a particular place from now compared to 10, 20 years ago? Yeah. I mean, you, you if you go down to the Potrillo Mountains, which are the southernmost end of the Oregon Mountain Desert Peaks National Monument, uh, you will see uh, just landscapes that have been ravaged both by overgrazing, but also climate change that once used to hold trophy bucks, trophy mule deer, that if you go there today, especially with folks who hunted there 10 or 20 years ago, they could point to areas where you had native grasses, where you had water flowing in the arroyos, where you had natural transition areas that provided the habitat for these big bucks that they claim that, you know, the, the older folks say, hey, they used to be here. They used to come out of these little arroyos and you could almost count on, you know, finding one every year. And people just don't even go there anymore. They don't waste their time driving down those dirt roads. Um, it's all dusty. It's it's all mesquite and creosote. It's all overgrazed. And you're lucky if you see a jackrabbit or two. And so that's kind of no man's land. What was once a pretty lush area for wildlife, including gambles and scaled quail, mule deer and antelope, uh, is really just turned into 100,000 acres of, of dirt and mesquite, which is pretty sad to see uh, because it really was once a, a beautiful thriving area here in the desert. So what do we do about the grim outlook unfolding in front of our eyes? What will the future of hunting and fishing in a place like New Mexico look like for sportsmen like Gabe? Fortunately, there are actions we can take, but we must act immediately and at a scale proportionate to the threat. The immense issues the Southwest is facing dictates that we take aggressive action on multiple fronts to both slow climate change and to build resilience to the impacts that are already occurring. Hunters and anglers risk the ability to pass on the traditions that we all say we cherish so much. We need to think about the next generation and the generation after that and make the decisions that are important uh, to make sure that they get, they, 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 they get the same opportunities that we do. And so, you know, sustainable harvesting of animals, sustainable uh, angling and fisheries is not going to be possible when we're managing endangered species in almost every forest and almost every desert or every mountain range. Uh, we simply will not be able to do the, but the things that we do when we're, when we're just trying to propagate species and prevent them from going into extinction. 
Um, hunting and fishing as we know it will not ever be the same if we continue at this pace. There is a clear need to act on climate in the Southwest. States like Colorado and New Mexico have already committed to adopt cleaner power and to lower carbon emissions. But we also need to look at additional tools to fully tackle climate change. Our public lands and waters in the Southwest, the habitat fish and game rely on, should be part of the climate solution. We need policies that support stewardship through conservation and restoration to take advantage of the climate benefits our forests and lands provide. By protecting natural systems, we can increase resilience to climate-fueled droughts and wildfires, protect wildlife habitat, and ultimately reduce atmospheric carbon pollution. We have to make tough decisions. We have to make those decisions that are going to benefit three and four and five generations from us. And we, can, we can't continue to be selfish. Um, it requires a lot. It requires um, building an electric grid that's capable of harvesting wind and solar energy in some of the more remote parts of, of New Mexico. It requires safeguarding and protecting places that are critical wildlife habitat areas in the state without making it political. Understanding the science and reading the science and following the science is going to be critical to saving species in New Mexico that we may not see for three or four generations if we continue going at this rate. And so we can't make conservation political. We can't make wildlife conservation political. We have to make it a driver of everything that we do moving forward if we want to see the same type of world that we see today and leave that behind for our grandkids and their great grandkids we have to smarten up i am aaron kindle and this has been vanishing seasons climate chronicles from the field original music written and performed by keenan koppel audio production by dave waldron Writing by Aaron Kindle and T.J. Brown. And thank you to Gabe Vasquez for sharing his story. Ask yourself today what you can do to help mitigate the impacts of climate change. What you will do to ensure future seasons. How you can demand that our decision makers take action right now to address our changing climate. And then set out tomorrow to get moving. Our sporting lives depend on it. For more information, visit nwf.org backslash Game Changer. This has been a production of NWF Outdoors. Mm-hmm.